0: Come
1: from. Gentlemen, do you realize what we found? It came from outer
2: space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop from outer space. Rowan.
0: If you ain't got no sauce, then you lost. But you also get lost in the sauce. Roderick Davis.
1: I'm not going to lie. I believe that aliens are already here. NLE
2: Choppa. If we knew what it was we were doing, it would not be called research, would it? Albert Einstein. And welcome back to the podcast from
1: outer space. It's your boy, Rob Scott. We got the Korean cowboy, AKA Billy the Kid, in the studio. Hey, what's going on, gentlemen? And as always, it's Ryan Scott. Greetings, Earthlings. And this is episode 117, where we will be discussing Dr. Gary Nolan and the Blue Skies research.
0: Yes, uh, this one... Going to be a little different, boys, because, uh, you know, I'm doing this research and what I thought started out to be like a simple case on this gentleman, Gary Nolan, actually ended up being more of a history type episode uh, and a pretty damn interesting one, if I do say so myself. So in this episode, uh, we are going to take a look at UFOs within academic circles get into Dr. Gary Nolan and some of his research before taking a look at Blue Sky's research and the history of Pergamon Press. Now, of course, this episode also fits into our larger Alien Summer series, uh, where last week we discussed Majestic 12. Um, so let's press on in our pursuit of connecting the dots on this UAP phenomenon, perhaps Bringing us one step closer to the truth, further into the rabbit hole, or deeper into the mud and quicksand that is ufology. Uh, perhaps we will be dipped into the bullshit, lost in the sauce, as they say. Who the fuck knows? We are just here to present the facts as they've been researched, you know? Uh, now, Before we start off, had either of you heard of any of this stuff? Doctor Gary Nolan, Blue Skies Research, Pergamon Press, prior to Alien Summer, or looking into this stuff?
2: No, uh, I never did. But it's all really interesting, and you know, we're going to further extrapolate down the line, getting to you know, talk about the science and all that good stuff. So, okay, I'm stoked.
0: Extrapolate, I like that scientific term. We're getting scientific here, guys.
1: Big vocab words. Oh yeah. Um I don't think I ever heard of Gary Nolan per se, but uh maybe like briefly looked over the Blue Skies research before in one of our earlier episodes.
0: Okay, okay. And anything interesting popping out there that you found or what?
1: Uh, I mean, kind of just seems like the the same old story, you know. Just researching what we don't know about and, uh, not really getting any, um, really not getting anywhere with it.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Now, now, honestly, so the more you look into this, the more complex and weird it becomes. And I mean, you can't make this shit up guys. And we'll go deeper into this next episode, uh, because I've got a, a special one planned, a mega deep dive into the wider, whole UFO story, Um, that'll be our coup de grace to Alien Summer, you know? Um, But essentially, a snippet of that is basically, you look at the U.S. government, and for a long time, they routinely ignored UFOs. Uh, Sometimes they'd issue full-on false explanations when pressed on the matter. Uh, This created an attitude of indifference uh, to the subject as a whole, and some would argue that this was irresponsible or outright disrespectful to credible sometimes expert witnesses. Um and you know we know this from our past episodes on encounters and sightings that the attitude was not this attitude was not always the case. Um you know looking at the decades that followed World War II uh, about a half of all Americans including several former presidents accepted UFOs as the truth. Uh, we also know that the government took them seriously enough to launch their own investigation, what became Project Blue Book. Uh, now, I am completely fascinated by this early period pertaining to like the history of UFOs. That's why, that's why I like to look at a lot of these classic cases. Why we've done episodes on them, and. Again, on those episodes, we also talk about like, you know, sci-fi is entering the cultural zeitgeist. And so maybe that played a role in what people believed or shaped the phenomenon, so to speak. Um, But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Maybe we'll get into that more on the next episode. But somewhere along the lines, it seems that the attitude shifted. Now, many would point to the Condon report as uh, as being the catalyst for this. Um, So in 1968, nuclear physicist and a pioneer in quantum mechanics, Edward Condon, uh, and a bunch of other scientists, they look at Blue Book's findings and a ton of earlier reports uh, from the time and produced a final report that said the study of UFOs was unlikely to yield major scientific discoveries. Now, basically, the whole, I guess, take-home message, the TLDL of the report, uh, was this. Quote,
1: Publishers who publish or teachers who teach any of the pseudosciences as established truth should, on being found guilty, be publicly horsewhipped and forever banned from further activity in these usual honorable professions. Truth and children's minds are too precious for us to allow them to be abused by charlatans.
0: Horsewhipped is a little uh brutal, I would say, right?
2: Yeah, it's almost um, you know, like back in the day when they would torture people. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, that's what the scientists wanted to do. It's, it's insane. It's like it's like, I'm going to tie you up on a you know against a wall and just hit you with really sharp chains. <laughs> if you preach this shit. Yeah, these basically like, God. Tonight- He's saying he's going to
0: crucify these motherfuckers like Jesus if they look into this stuff. Um,
2: yeah, man, that's too much. Now,
0: now, so so following this, um, scientists and officials could basically look the other way. And, you know, in the meantime, the media got the best of both worlds because they're selling papers with tales of UFOs and sightings and shit. But ultimately, they're making fun of them. Uh, they're writing them off altogether as, as possible as as science fiction essentially now then came the birth and popularity of ufology so this was kind of born out of people independently looking into what the government and academia had brushed off Um, however this would probably add more mud to the water as ufologists a lot of times like to die on the cross for certain historical encounters like roswell Um, and you know we obviously talked about this on a Roswell episode. Cases like that that are so big, like any solid evidence that might have once existed has become endlessly entangled within its own mythology. Now you throw in the legacy of Cold War paranoia, and the UFO issue uh, became a never-ending game of ping-pong, bouncing between legitimacy and utter bullshit. Um, But... Hear me out on this and let me know if you guys agree. It seems that the attitudes are starting to shift back into the realm of legitimacy. Uh, Since the groundbreaking 2017 New York Times article on the government's UAP program, the government has essentially reversed its official position, which had been publicly ignoring UAPs. And for the sake of this episode, guys, UFO, UAP, that's going to be interchangeable. Um, So now... They're starting to tackle the subject openly. Um, and we've discussed this on and off on this show for the last five years or so, you know, periodically given updates or current event episodes, discussing um, everything with, you know, Tom DeLong and the Tic Tac footage ever since that came out. And there does seem to be this ongoing shift in attitudes towards UAP that has been going on for the last few years at least maybe in terms of the government now is that is that would you agree there or is that off
1: base um i mean i don't think it's too off base but it also just kind of makes me wonder like back in the day when all this research really started like when shit really started to hit the fan if you will for lack of a better term uh uh-huh. That was like height of the Cold War, you would say, yeah. Right, right. And then now it's like, look at us now, we're like right back in it with Russia and there's all this like crazy shit going on in the news and then all of a sudden we're going to like bust out all this UAP, UFO stuff at the same time. It's just kind of a little odd to me, I think. But I mean, it's kind of cool that it's like making its way back into the, the mainstream, I guess you could say.
0: Okay. And I think, well, I think the major difference being that, like, I feel like back in those earlier cases, like you were talking about, when we were in the Cold War with Russia, it was more like that's when the government was kind of just denying this stuff. Like, they weren't talking about Area 51. Nobody really had it confirmed they kept shit really fucking under wraps uh you know try to keep it away from the russian spies and shit whereas now it's like we talked about with the arrow episode you got these guys openly testifying to congress and shit they're talking about it it's uh it's a buzz term it's all over the fucking place you know
2: right and one might even assume that there's a higher frequency of the activity since then um maybe not I, we'd have to look at the data, right, but that's a possibility, but yeah, the government has been a lot more communicative, I guess is the right word okay um about this issue, which I think is it hopefully is going in a good direction, okay, so I
0: think we're more or less on the same
2: page,
1: yep, just to like tie into that um that article that I sent you guys about the whistleblowers talking to Congress that will have happened by the time this episode drops. So that should be pretty interesting. Maybe we can like briefly touch on that in the next episode. If, if it's like anything of interest to us.
0: Yeah. I think if enough comes out, if it's not another fucking, uh, Ben Stein jerk off session, um, where we don't get anywhere. I think, yeah, we can definitely throw it in our, our large history. I think that'll be a major point. Um, And, you know, speaking about that, so all this news is coming out. You know, it doesn't stop. The news doesn't stop. Uh, And I'm digging around because, obviously, I want to find out about the aliens. I want to see what these motherfuckers are up to. Um, Now, one of the more interesting questions popping around out there seems to be that now that the government is starting to take UFOs more seriously again, is it time for more academics and industry leaders and innovators to do the same? Um, You know, it's like we were saying with last episode within academia, the topic is often immediately dismissed with a laugh or some snide comment about extraterrestrials. Uh, You know, you look at these like, uh, we'll call them pop scientists. That's like a—I think that's a, a term I'm coining, you know, guys like Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse, Tyson, Carl Sagan. Those those guys, um, when they're asked about like UFOs, they generally laugh off the subject. You know, Carl Sagan did this back in the 80s. And now guys like Elon Musk and Neil deGrasse, uh, they, they do it today. And, you know, that's not to like vilify these guys Um, Sagan, you know, he spent most of his life trying to find out the answer to Are We Alone? Uh, He wrote Contact. He was a big advocate for SETI. uh, He worked on the Voyager program, but he did carry a hefty dose of skepticism. Um, No different than Elon or Neil today. Uh, Neil deGrasse even said he would only take the idea seriously when, quote, aliens send him a dinner invite. Uh, and you know, Elon Musk is no different. Like he goes on Joe Rogan and is like, uh, "Joe, I think I'd know if the aliens were here. <laughs> I think I'd know it, Joe." You know, like it's just I don't know. Like, how do you guys feel about? it? Like, do you guys see that too?
2: Yeah, I mean, scient- pop pop scientists, as you would say, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, they they think they they think they know better. You know, it's a situation where the scientific community will laugh something off to keep their reputation clear Uh, as the majority of the leaders within the scientific community write off this phenomenon as, you know, silly and stupid. It's like saving face. You know, it's like, I want to, I'm not going to really explore this because it's not really accepted within the scientific community. People laugh it off. But now it's getting to a point where, you know, we are seeing more of of this phenomenon. The government is acknowledging it. So the scientific community should therefore join, you know, dispel that, um, I guess. Stigma. Stigma, right.
0: Yeah, and it's like maybe they don't want to be horse whipped by this motherfucker um, <laughs> for looking <laughs> at this shit. No, but I was wondering, like, were the scientists of, I guess, like, you look at back in the day, like, I guess it is still the same because, like we said, pop scientists, but like. Guys like Einstein, Einstein, Enrico Fermi, or even like J. Robert Oppenheimer, they were like celebrities back in the day, you know. Like, um, and I don't think they were necessarily... They didn't like set out to be pop scientists. They were just celebrities because they were brilliant scientists. And I, there's not a whole lot of footage of these guys, you know. Like, there's basically no footage of nikola tesla who's one of the more like famous guys and i was wondering if these guys would have been the same like do you think einstein and fermi would have been like going on talk shows and shit and just kind of laughing this shit off or being dickheads about it
2: i don't necessarily think so i think any one of those really you know legendary physicists they're gonna they're gonna know that it's like a hundred percent chance that there's life outside of what we understand within the universe. So I think to a certain extent they could they could acknowledge it, especially if if there's more data and, you know, with these different government or um departments that are being formed to study this stuff, you know. Okay. I'd hope they'd be open minded to it, but I guess that's the whole point of this episode, right? <laughs> right, right, right.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely get into the whole like reputation and saving face stuff that you were talking about.
2: I think
1: that you know, obviously, as you previously mentioned with Sagan, like, kind of dedicating his life to that kind of stuff, it's a little bit different with, like, guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye because they're, they have shows that they're paid to be on and they already have contracts. And if they're out here, like, spouting off wild shit about UFOs, that's going to kind of, like in today's day and age, cancel them, it in a oh, sense. okay. but All right. it's I didn't like, even
0: really think about that. That's a good point. But,
1: like, guys like Elon Musk, like, he's already... He's a fucking billionaire, so, like, he could pretty much say whatever the fuck he wants, and, like, no one can really do shit about it. Like, yeah, people can, like, talk shit in the media, but at the end of the day, he's still going <laughs> to be, like, the owner of Tesla and Twitter and SpaceX and you know obviously like the guy has a uh, invested interest in it or he wouldn't have started SpaceX you know
0: yeah and i get, and he is i think a bit of a troll like more so than these other guys do you think that his whole like denying aliens is trolling mm,
1: i mean maybe in like a a sense yes but i think that like if you truly like didn't like if you were really in the camp of like oh, we're the only, like, intelligent life out there. I don't think you kind of, like, dedicate your life to space exploration and that kind of stuff and, like, finding renewable sources of energy and, like, all the stuff that he's been doing, you know? Because, cause, like, these really? other guys that we're talking about, like, you know, obviously, even though they're ahead of their time, like Einstein, Fermi, Oppenheimer, the guys that we're talking about, like... Yes, they're brilliant for their time, but, like, at the same time, they had so much other shit going on that probably UFOs was, like, the least of their concern. Whereas, like, a guy like Elon Musk can, like I said, he could get away with pretty much whatever he wants just because of the money and the power that he already has.
0: Okay, okay.
1: I mean, that's just, like, my opinion on it, but I think... Also, it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson might have other thoughts on it, but he's not going to like hop on his show that he's getting paid for and just be like, "Oh yeah, aliens are real. Check this out." Because then they're going to be like, "Neil, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? You're you're off the show."
0: Well, what the fuck? That's fucking science. All right. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I agree, but
1: it's like it's also controlled to a certain sense of like what he can and can't say. You know.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Unfortunately.
0: Okay. Now, all right. So there is a flip side, I think, to the hardened skeptics within the field of academia. Um, but I think they are few and far between, you know, mostly for the sake of like Billy said, protecting their reputation. Um, and like I said, more on this later. Now, just to name a few, you've got guys like Dr. John Mack, uh, he was the he-, he is the head or was the head of the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and a Pulitzer Prize winner who studied hundreds of men and women who reported recurrent alien encounter experiences. Uh, we got into him a bit on our Whitley Strieber episode,
1: episode one hundred four. If you guys want to check that one out,
0: now there is also our boy theoretical physicist Avi Loeb. Um, who has headed up the Galileo Project, and he seems to be working on a system for capturing and analyzing consistent UAP data. Uh, we went into him a little bit on our Arrow episode that kicked off Alien Summer, and he'll probably eventually get his own episode, depending on how the Gal- Galileo Project goes. Um, I think we'll have to do some more digging on that. Uh, and eno-
2: Yeah, also Amuamua, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll we'll get into all of that. I think. I mean, I think we probably do have enough to get give him his own episode. But I do think it would be interesting to see where the Galileo Project goes in the next next couple years. Um, Absolutely. Now another name, another name that pops up over and over when looking into the phenomenon and all the info that has recently come out is a gentleman by the name of Gary Nolan, Doctor Gary Nolan, to be exact. Now, a little bit of background on this gentleman. Uh, So there is a picture of him there. Now, Nolan graduated in 1983 from Cornell University. So he's a Cornell man um, with a degree in biology with a focus in genetics. 1989, he received his Ph.D. in genetics from Stanford University uh, before doing postdoctoral work at MIT, where he co-developed the 293T-based rapid retroviral production system, and the cloning of the NF-KB P65 slash REL-A DNA regulatory factor. Now, I have no clue what the fuck any of that is. (laughs) I'm I'm just saying these are his fucking credentials now.
1: I had a sidebar real quick. It just made me okay. think of it. Do I don't know why I didn't add this in there, but uh, the MIT thing made me think of it. This guy actually stayed at the hotel like two weeks ago and I was talking to him. He's a professor. Whoa, whoa, at- well
0: back up. The hotel that you work at for our listeners who might not know. Correct. Rob is the executive chef of a hotel in in uh somewhere in Virginia.
1: This is correct. Okay. Um, so
0: yes, chef, continue. <laughs>
1: I had uh, a <laughs> I had this professor from MIT come into the restaurant like 2 weeks ago I think it was and okay. I was asking him like what he was doing Here from MIT, and he said he's. (laughs) What the fuck are you doing, dude? Well, no, he was just like, "Oh, I'm a professor at MIT," and I was like, "Oh, that's awesome." And then I was like, "What do you? Well, like, what brought you to like middle of nowhere Virginia, basically?" And he was like, "Oh, I'm actually on a road trip right now. Me and one of the other professors are." Going around installing equipment to track aerial phenomenon throughout the United States right now. So MIT is currently collecting information for that kind of stuff. I mean, he didn't specifically. Did you give him? Did you throw him
0: some stickers? Tell him about the
1: pod. (laughs) I did tell him about the podcast, but I did not have stickers on me at the moment.
0: Okay, all right.
1: But just a sick, just an interesting. They're they're out
2: there. Okay, yeah, little uh,
0: inside scoop from MIT from Rob. Um. Now, Dr. Gary Nolan is currently a professor of pathology at Stanford University, and he holds an endowed chair. Now, I don't really know, I don't really understand what this academic shit is, but I think, like, an endowed chair, isn't that, like, you're basically, like, carrying on the torch of all these, like, super well-known scientists and they've set up, like, trust funds and shit for you to have, like, continuous funding, I think is what that is. I believe you guys that's know? correct. Okay.
2: Now, I have not the slightest fucking clue <laughs> as to what that endowed chair... sounds so proper.
0: Right, right. I mean, it's academia, dude. These guys are fucking pompous dickheads, like we were saying. He's the um, big
2: dick on campus, basically.
0: Yes, yes. Now, Dr. Gary Nolan, so his research spans... From cancer to systems immunology, um, he's got over 300 research articles published. He holds 40 U.S. patents. He was involved in the founding of eight biotech companies, and he is honored as one of Stanford's top 25 inventors. So, this guy, you know, he's got the awards and honors, yada, yada. He's a big time in the field of medicine. It's no secret. He's got the credentials. Guy's a swinging dick
2: academic. Are you sure he has his credentials? They they might have been. Know. They might have been fully wiped. Well, if he you know, has, they might be. it uh, could be bogus. Might be Bob Lazar.
0: Dude, he has the endowed chair. Man, he showed it to me. Uh, no, this guy. Jesus I mean, oh, that's personal. His credentials are fucking not questionable. This is not a Bob Lazar type. He's not just lying about this.
2: I, I know. I'm. I'm just being a dick. <laughs> right, he I'm probably. Definitive. He probably does have his credentials.
0: Uh, not a probably. We don't want to spread misinformation. He definitely has his credentials. Like Rob said, 10-4. he's he's a big dick on campus. Um, now, for the last 12 years or so, Dr. Nolan has also been working with a number of individuals analyzing material from alleged UFOs, as well as studying the biological effects on those who claim to have witnessed UFOs. Now, since the formation of the United Aerial, uh, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force in 2020, which, as we talked about, is now kaput, multiple publications have reported Nolan's involvement with the Pentagon and the CIA investigating samples of materials allegedly ejected at sites where UFO sightings took place. Um, Yes, allegedly, in quotes. Now, his gateway into UFOs. Pretty interesting, too. So Nolan himself, he said he was always an avid reader of science fiction. So, of course, when YouTube videos about UFOs begin to pop up, he's going to watch a few. Now, he began to take notice of Stephen Greer's claim that this little skeleton found in Chile uh, might have been an alien. And that is the country Chile. Not to be con- like they didn't find this at a Chili's restaurant. <laughs>
1: it would be um, cool if they did that. <laughs> That would have been weird. Just came out on his order of fajitas one night. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. they Found this little alien out the Chili's down there. Um, now, Nolan starts thinking, okay, I can prove or disprove this. So in 2012, he began his analysis on the suspected alien corpse from Chile known as the Atacama skeleton, pictured here on the right. Now, had you guys ever seen this or heard of this before?
2: No, that thing looks wild. <laughs>
0: right, right.
2: If I if I saw that walking around the woods
0: or at Chili's,
2: I'd be a little concerned. Or at Chili's,
1: <laughs> yeah, looks like a damn. I'm eating chili money. at
2: Chili's, and it's just like, oh, is that a bean? Oh no, that's an alien. That's, that's a mummified alien. alien baby.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, obviously, yep. this is not an alien corpse, or the current news wouldn't seem so strange. Um, now, Nolan did, however, reveal this to be a mummified human stillbirth with genetic bone defects and gene mutation, which caused the deformity. Um, so this thing starts popping up on front page of just about every major news site uh, because this is classic alien clickbait with headlines like
2: Stanford professor sequences alien baby. <laughs> okay, OK, all right. Um, So with the popularity
0: of this alien mummy stuff, uh, Nolan is brought to the attention of people associated with the CIA and some aerospace corporations, he says. Now, basically, these government spooks, they wanted him to help them understand the medical harm that had come to individuals related to interactions with UAP. Um, They chose him primarily for the types of blood analysis his lab could perform. Now, here's the kicker, guys. This is basically useless. Uh, A lot of these guys had incidents with UAP months or years before Nolan was looking at their blood, which he said was no good. You know, he needed to be looking at their blood within like a week's time. Um, But he did help them investigate the brains of these patients, scanned around 100 patients via MRI mostly. Uh, Mostly defense or governmental personnel or people working in the aerospace industry, of which a number of them claim to have seen unexplained aerial phenomenon or UFOs. And the majority exhibited symptoms that were basically identical to what is now known as Havana syndrome. Now, Havana syndrome. Had you guys ever heard of this before?
2: No. Doesn't it come out of
1: Cuba, though? Yes, it does. Havana, Cuba. Very good. It's when you really want a Cubano.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's when you're just craving that sweet, sweet uh, Cuban food. Now, now this is a brief overview as I understand it, because I'm sure that, that this is an entire deep rabbit hole with this one. Um, but the basics are, are this. So with Havana syndrome, um, basically staff at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba started experiencing health problems in 2016. And it was severe and common enough that gov- the government started to suspect something was happening. In other words, this wasn't just a bunch of random people randomly getting sick. This was not a coincidence. Now, symptoms are all over the place, but it's mostly things like disorientation, hearing loss, heart problems, anything from pain and ringing in the ears to cognitive dysfunction. Um, so symptoms are broad enough that it's, <coughs> it's not something super obvious, Now, beginning in 2017, more people, including U.S. intelligence and military personnel and their families, reported having the same symptoms in other places like China, New Delhi, India, Europe, even Washington, D.C. So now we got similar symptoms popping up in multiple nations. It's not just a one-time event exclusive to Cuba. Now, as we said, that's just where it was first reported. And it's entirely possible that nothing is happening at all, but based on what's been made public, it's also plausible that someone is using a new type of non-lethal weapon on embassy personnel. Now, theories on this include everything like pulses of sound beyond human hearing levels, exposure to unknown chemicals or tops, toxins, or possibly just a classic case of mass hysteria. So Havana syndrome, basically nobody knows what the fuck it is.
1: Basically just a metaphor for the uh, entire UAP study program as a whole. Just, you know, we're out here studying it, but really got no idea what the fuck's going on. Right,
0: yeah. Or maybe our science hasn't caught up. But I guess that's the kind of... That's the breakdown I got is nobody fucking knows what it is. Um, you know so, what would
1: be cool, though, is if someone made a uh, Alien Mummy crossover movie. I was just thinking about that. Okay, so
0: like... It's like the mummy with Brendan Fraser meets ancient aliens.
1: Or it could be like, like Sigourney Weaver and Brendan Fraser team up and it's like they got to fight off these mummified aliens that are coming back to life because okay, th- okay. they really built the pyramids.
0: Or, yeah, maybe something like Stargate where the pier- there's this gate to like the other fucking space place where Horus and the ancient Egyptian gods live or something.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: okay maybe we that's another pitch that's another pitch idea for hollywood
1: the pyramids really go deep to the center of the earth that'd be sick
0: uh okay so all right so back to the story here havana syndrome don't know what the fuck it is but it's weird people are getting sick now nolan in these mri scans they're basically finding similar symptoms with these guys who have have claimed to witness or been exposed to uap now, Nolan stated that some of the brains that they looked at seemed to be horribly damaged. What they soon realized was that these people were not damaged, but had an overconnection of neurons between the head of the caudate and the patellum. Now, the caudate plays a critical role in various higher neurological functions, and the patellum, the butyum, is that how you say it? I don't know how to fucking say these shits. I'm not a fucking neurosurgeon. But the Puterman. V- Puterman, um influences motor planning, learning, and execution. So Nolan said, if you looked at 100 average people, you wouldn't see this kind of density. But these guys all had it. So the question then became, did coming in contact with whatever these UAP are cause it or not? Now, for a couple of these individuals, there were MRIs from years prior, which indicated that they had it before the incidents. So then it became obvious that this was something that people were born with, and these are so-called high-functioning people. You know, these are, they're pilots, they're making split decisions, they're intelligence officers in the field, et cetera. So I guess it really wasn't just like from coming in contact with UAPs. Now, did we have any thoughts on this? Because I really just added this in because it's his gateway into UFOs. Um, but I, it would be crazy if there was a connection like essentially seeing a UAP could fuck with your brain on that level. That's like straight out of a, a sci-fi movie, right?
1: I mean, do we think maybe they're just chalking it up to this Havana syndrome so they don't have to acknowledge the fact that maybe there is uh, some anomaly with all these people that claim to... Have come in contact with some UAP?
0: No, I. It's there's no connection to Havana syndrome other than, like, the symptoms were similar. Like, I guess maybe these guys would see a UAP get all fucking disoriented, you know? Um, like, they're huffing glue or something and be like, what the fuck? You know?
2: <laughs> Do we know if these guys had all experienced UAP phenomenon or is it just some of them
0: I know I believe it was all of them I think that's why they brought him in to do the studies and stuff um,
2: okay but so it's it, just it, kinda it is kind of hard to it's, it is interesting but it's hard to make that connection I feel like without because how are you gonna connect because you'd have to connect like the date and time that they witness the UAP how would you even like tie the science into physical symptoms like how can you tell it would be from that craft we don't don't even know what the craft's made out of
0: right and i think that's what he was getting at with mris like he's saying all right they had the interaction they wanted us to study this guy because he had some kind of symptoms and then he realized looking at older mri records oh they always had this density of like connected neurons it wasn't specific to like after seeing the uap makes
2: sense okay yeah okay now
0: more recently nolan has teamed up with famed ufologist jacques valet uh you guys familiar right this is the french guy venture capitalist he worked with heinic on blue book um i think he's been on rogan before as well um very famous ufologist now they've teamed up in order to investigate samples of materials quote-unquote allegedly ejected at ufo landing sites um Or I guess, you know, Nolan is working on this, and there's specific cases that that Valais brought to him. Uh, Now, this is very, very intriguing, because Nolan describes what they're doing as investigative forensics. Uh, Basically, there's a claim. They use scientific means to investigate and document the claim. Now, in the case of these materials, they're almost all metals that are claimed to have have either been dropped by UAPs or somehow left behind. Um, So he says, here's how you do the analysis. And he also says, am I the best person to do the analysis? No. He's not claiming to be an expert metallurgist, uh, but he is willing to do the groundwork to get preliminary results that might interest said expert metallurgist to examine further. Now, it isn't like they're sitting on some smoking gun here. This isn't some new element not found on Earth or some crazy type of new liquid metal or some shit like that. But there are interesting things that he's finding looking at these bits of metal. And keep in mind, these are tiny pieces of metal. These are, this is like little scrap metal. Um, now, also keep in mind, we here at the podcast from Outer Space are not expert metallurgists either. Um, But hold on to your butts because this is where things get pretty, pretty intriguing.
2: Uh uh uh. (laughs) Say the magic word.
0: Right now, some of the objects are nondescript and just lumps of metal. Mostly, there's nothing unusual about them. Now, they've looked at about a dozen. And out of those, two seem to not be playing by our rules, he says. Now, that doesn't mean they're levitating on his desk or anything. It just means they have altered isotope ratios. Now, why is this interesting? So, everywhere you look in the metal, the composition is different, which is odd. It's what's known as an inhomogeneous or incompletely mixed now, the common thing about the metals that Nolan has observed so far is that none of them are uniform. They're all hodgepodge mixtures. Each individual case will be composed of a similar set of elements, but will be inhomogeneous. Now, of the, uh, one of the materials is from the Ubatuba event, which is a UFO case in Brazil. And the metal sample has an extraordinarily altered isotope ratios of magnesium. Now, specifically, cases where there are changes in isotope ratios, Nolan says, are intriguing because we don't know why someone would do that in the first place. It's an expensive process. So if somebody is engineering isotope isotope ratios for a practical purpose, his team is trying to understand why. Because that would be evidence of an understanding of material science that we do not currently possess. So this actually kind of reminds me of what Billy was saying, I believe, in our Arrow episode. Like, it could be something that we may never figure out based on our current understanding of science.
2: Absolutely. Because we understand where we're at now. It's really hard to imagine where we're going to be at 15, 200, 2,000 years from now. And probably I mean, technology is moving at such a rapid pace we we might not be we might not be there Techno- like technolog- right, technologically right right technologically
0: this could be like trying to tell some motherfuckers um during the bubonic plague about germs exactly you know they have no fucking idea like it could be this it's same situation here um so let's take a big step back and think about what isotopes are used for today you do you guys know what isotopes are
2: used for i learned it in chem I think geology, but okay, okay. I don't. I don't remember shit from college. Just to be <laughs> honest, right.
0: like I said, we're not metallurgists here. Um, I'm yeah. just. I'm just looking at this stuff for for the layman. Now, most of the time, we humans use isotopes to blow stuff up, think uranium or plutonium, or to poison someone, or they're used as a tracer to kill cancer. Now, those are very specific cases, and we almost always. We almost always only are using radioactive isotopes. Now, it's not standard practice to change the isotope ratios of stable isotopes, except as a tracer. So, if you find a metal where the isotope ratios are changed far beyond what is normally found in nature, then that means the material has likely been engineered. It's the product of a process that caused them to be altered. Someone did it. The question, the questions they're asking are who and why. Now let's take another step back and look at these metals in the context of UAPs. Now, in some cases, the witnesses state that the UAP appeared unstable or in some kind of distress, and then it spits out a bunch of stuff. And now the object is stable and it flies off. It's, it's essentially fixed itself. Now, one hypothesis he uh, suggests would be that the, the material it offloads is part of a mechanism the object uses for moving around. So, when things get out of whack, the object self-corrects, spits out this waste, drops the stuff to the ground, kind of like, a, think of this like a car's exhaust. Now, the question is, what are they using it for? If there's altered isotope ratios, Are they using the altered isotope ratios? Are the altered ratios the result of the propulsion mechanism? When the ratios get that far out of whack, do they have to offload because it's no longer useful for propulsion? Now, this is all pure speculation. um, And he says it seems as if the data is there, the explanation is not.
2: Now, what are we thinking here? Reminds me of avi lobe and the and the the amuamua which is like basically what everyone assumed was a comet i believe either it
0: was like that giant rock um
2: right that that was it's like yeah it's orbiting it's it's doing its thing it's kind of get it got caught in like an orbit orbital pattern within our solar system and everyone just thought it was a very oddly shaped thing right and but then Avi Loeb and his team started to study it more, and they realized that it was like sleek and kind of it didn't look like something natural, like every other you know comet they'd they experienced. So they're thinking, oh, it may it may have been like uh, manufactured material.
0: And wasn't it something with like the trajectory? Like it's he was saying the trajectory. It was as if it was like pushed into our solar system or whatever.
2: Yep, the trajectory was weird. Like, they it's just it's strange. So they hypothesize that it's basically extraterrestrial waste of some type. Okay. Okay. uh, Manufactured metals. So, you know, it'd be very close to something that Nolan's saying. They're just saying they're coming here and spitting it out as like a fuel resource dump.
0: Right. And and Nolan actually has these little samples of metal. Like he's actually like looking at this stuff. Uh, it's in his own yeah, hands. Cool. It's not like he's studying it far out in the fucking um, outer space.
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy stuff.
0: Okay, Rob, did we have any thoughts here?
1: I mean, I guess like just going off what Billy said. I mean, it seems like if the guy's hypothesis is that it's spitting it out as like a like a like you said like a car exhaust, then. That kind of makes sense, but it's like you're not really going to know the answer to the question until you come in contact with, like, one of the objects that's actually, like, dumping these materials, you know?
0: Right, right. We wouldn't know. Yeah. It's like trying to figure out a car's engine by only looking at exhaust
2: fume. And, like, all this is just completely hypothetical, right? I mean, I I guess it's.
0: His theories on the propulsion shit is, like, yeah, that's just him speculating on, on like, why it, it is that. I mean, this could be, like we said, something totally fucking different that we have no idea what the fuck it is. Probably is that.
1: <laughs> it's kind of like, um, just as an analogy, like, if you never saw a chicken and you just found a fucking egg and you're like, what the fuck is this thing? You know? Right. It's like... You can like, and then you're thinking which
0: one, which came first, the chicken or the egg?
1: <laughs> well, no, you're just like, what the hell is this thing? Like, what did it come from? What is it used for? Like, why, are, why are these things laying all over the ground? And then, if you never actually see the chicken, then you're stuck. Like, you can analyze it and break it open and study it, but if you don't know like the original source that the material came from, then it's kind of hard to have like a definitive answer on it, you know.
0: All right, so this metal is possibly eggs, alien eggs,
1: alien eggs. <laughs> right. They're just chopping right, them off. All right,
0: so so if they do, if 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 uh, Nolan and his team do fit the pieces of this puzzle together, that he says that could open up new opportunities for high-performance craft materials on and off planet. Now, him and Jacques Villet, they plan to go through the academic peer review process which in their minds could greatly advance academic respect for the subject. Now, peer review. Keep this in the back of your mind for the latter part of this episode. Now, back to Dr. Nolan. So so just this year, the doctor spoke at the Salt Eye Connections Conference in New York. Now, here are some highlights from his panel. And I pulled these off of a uh, Reddit post, which had a, a video of, of his talk there. And and Nolan himself, this guy's all over Reddit. He has an account and he like posts in here and he actually commented on this thread. Now, here are some highlights from his talk at the panel. So he said about seven years ago, he was two weeks away from seeing a recovered craft that crashed, but the rug was pulled out from underneath him. We talked about this in our Arrow episode. This happens all the fucking time. Now, he also noted at the conference that a whistleblower had testified to Congress and created a hornet's nest in Washington. Now, we now know that this turned out to be David Grush. Now, some other opinions that Nolan holds are that the Wilson memo is legitimate, which we got into on our MJ-12 episode. He also thinks that Bob Lazar is a fraud, and he agrees with Dr. Eric Davis's opinion which is that he basically worked at some low-level capacity near or around Area 51, but made up the whole alien reverse craft story. He also said that Richard Doty is full of bullshit. That's the guy who we said was working for, I, th- I think it was the FBI or some intelligence agency, and he said the whole thing was a psyop with like aliens. We discussed this in our last couple episodes and heavily in our Men in Black episode. Um, now he said some trusted names on the topic are Stanton Friedman, Jacques Vallée, and Avi Loeb, and he had a low opinion of Neil DeGrasse Tyson. He also wow, s- wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. fucked
2: up, He also dude. said
0: that he resigned from to the Stars Academy because Tom Delong went off the deep end in some of the things he was posting and was ultimately hurting scientific discussion of the topic. Now, he thinks that any alien bodies recovered are not actual aliens, but avatars that they created in order to interact with us. And he says, whatever it is seems to be testing us and our intelligence to see if we can, quote, peer behind the veil. And he made the analogy that we can make a robotic ant that can create pheromones to chemically speak with ants, but we cannot teach ants how to make an iPhone. Now, Dr. Avi Loeb, he also says, went from a non-believer to fully believing extraterrestrials are here in under a year due to all the groundwork that has been laid out evidence-wise. And he said there may be numerous factions to whatever we are dealing with. It isn't likely one entity or one species. Now, he also said there will be big news coming out later this summer that will turn heads and change opinions. Now, of course, he was talking about our series on Alien Summer. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I don't notes, think dude. we know what that news is. Maybe this is like what Rob was talking about with the uh, the conference and shit. Um, but you know, the- it's
2: really interesting. And I mean, Christopher Mellon came out. Uh, he he was on News Nation recently talking about the same thing. How he thought the government was going to come out talking about some crazy stuff here pretty soon. Um, it's just, it's really crazy to see all these similarities. You know, he mentions the Wilson memo, uh, the Wilson memo, MJ 12. Um, and then the, the only thing I didn't really understand was when he says that they're avatars. Cause that's one thing that doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
0: So you are familiar with the film, right? <laughs>
2: i mean vaguely dude i'm
0: being serious i've I've never seen the film but i know the plot and i think it's the same think about like the matrix when they fucking plug into the matrix maybe i think he's getting at that's what these aliens are doing and i think there was somewhere i heard like you know the grays typical gray the big eyes gray skin like someone was saying Mm -hmm. that if you like you know again, insider this was like some cryptic fucking forum post on like alienation dot com or something, but it's like people who have examined these bodies like the grace their gray skin is actually just a spacesuit, and those big eyes like when you peel them back, they're like goggles that are connected to like their eyeballs or something, so maybe I don't know, maybe it's like that like avatars as in they're like drones or something they're not the real aliens, they're just whatever this intelligence made to to come here and contact us or some shit does that make sense
2: that makes a lot more sense yeah but at first i was kind of like what but i guess they're all reporting kind of similar things about like the bodies and all that it's it's just a lot a lot's kind of coming full circle a little bit it's kind of weird they're just
1: sending out their ai to communicate with us not actually coming themselves yeah,
0: and it, I mean, maybe it is like full. It is fully like Avatar, dude. I think fucking um, James Cameron has been like let in on some insider shit. I think he knows more than than he's saying because he made Avatar. He fucking has explored the Titanic and deep sea like thirty times or some shit. And uh, remember the premise to that movie, The Abyss. Where, like, there are some form of like evolved aliens that have been living in our oceans for years.
1: Yes. Yeah. Dude,
0: you can't find that movie anywhere. I was looking for it to rewatch and like trying to get an idea, and you can't find it anywhere, dude. It's not even on Amazon Prime to rent. It says currently unavailable. Is that possibly because there's some deep connection? I think fucking James Cameron's like an inside guy or something.
1: He might be. The aliens let them go explore the Titanic.
0: <laughs> I think so. Maybe the aliens are living in the fucking Titanic. They probably crushed that uh, that submarine. The oh, um, it
1: wasn't an iceberg. It was just a UAP <laughs> in the water.
0: Oh no, not, no! The submarine that went to explore it that cru- that got crushed. What was it called? Like uh, with all the billionaires, it was huge in the the, the
1: Titan. Yeah, what was that? Yeah, the Titan. Titan. I think the yeah.
0: aliens fucking crushed that because these guys are getting onto the trail.
1: Too close to the um, name Titanic, Never right, had a right? Chance.
0: Now, now, when it comes to information that Nolan has personally been told by individuals within the U.S. intelligence community, he says that he has indeed been provided compelling information. The number of individuals he's spoken with and the information they've provided leans him towards believing at least some of it must be accurate information. However, he still hasn't been shown hard physical evidence of UAP, for example, a whole craft, bodies, that kind of shit. So Nolan also says that he is uh, prepared to accept that he could be mistaken or even that some of the information might have been provided with the intent of misleading him. But given all that, he gives the probability as 100% that extraterrestrials have not only visited Earth, but have been visiting Earth for a long time. He also um, shared his speculation that what has visited Earth are simply, Billy, as we were saying, emissaries possibly remotely controlled drones or some type of AI, and that these are regular occurrences, and that some governments have retrieved artifacts from these extraterrestrial craft.
1: That's a hell of a connection to have if you're sending out remote-controlled devices to another planet.
0: I mean, aliens, man. Or excuse me, extraterrestrials, man.
1: Emissaries, Um, dude. AI.
0: (laughs) Yeah, AI emissaries. Now, Nolan basically says the crux of the whole UAP issue is why are we afraid to talk about it? He says it's interesting that suddenly in the last year it has come to national attention. Now, he also said that to his knowledge, there are dozens of other scientists who are currently working on UFO issues, and there are most likely others who just don't want to step forward because of, as we said, the reputation.
1: The implication.
0: Because of the implication.
1: They don't want to send the real people because of the implication of what might happen to them. Right,
0: right, right. Um, now, part well, of the prop.
1: I mean, sorry, the only thing I'm having trouble with with that statement is this is not the first time that there it's coming to national attention. This is like, maybe, you know, for people that are around our age, like the first time that we can remember it being in like the national media. But I mean, dude, if we were alive when in the forties and fifties, like during the time when Roswell happened, like that shit was probably all over the news, dude. But see, that's where I mean. I was obviously, getting at. like obviously not in the same way, but I think it's like because of the history of like sweeping things under the rug and calling everything a weather balloon and like never coming out and saying the truth. I think that kind of like hinders everyone a little bit from actually get like diving more into the subject because it's like. Even if they do come up with something interesting or like get somewhere with their research, it's just like, hey, dude, you're getting shut down. You can't talk about this shit.
0: Well, yeah, that's where I was getting at at the beginning with the whole ping pong between legitimacy and not like, yes, in Roswell, this was all over headlines. But they were just saying, hey, weather balloon, slap weather balloon on every encounter and then it was kind of like we said, stigmatized, and just now, in our day and age it's 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 back in the fucking headlines as hey, this is actually there's something going on here, there's something to this phenomenon. I think that's what he's talking about
2: and also, when you got guys like Christopher Mellon coming out talking about these things, I mean someone that is that bona fide and like credentialed, he was like he worked was it assistant?" Assistant, too. It was something with the intelligence community was, uh, with the de- Senate
0: Defense Intelligence Agency, and he right. also works with Tom DeLong, doesn't he? Isn't he still at like to the stars or whatever?
2: I think so, yeah. But it's like you know, I showed my dad an interview or a snippet of like a conversation he had with Rogan when they were talking about the UAP stuff. And my dad's like not, he doesn't buy into this stuff, but he's right. like, oh, well, a guy like that talking about this, you know, that kind of changes things a little bit. Right. That's
0: where I'm, that's where I think he's kind of going with this. Hey, it's changing. It's coming back into national and scientific attention, that kind of shit. Um, now, part of the problem, possibly the biggest part is that there is no funding. Um, you know, for the most part, these independent guys like Avi Loeb, Jock Filay, they're nickel and diming it. They're paying for the research themselves, working on it in their spare time. Um, just as an example, those isotope ratio tests we talked about, Nolan running, depending on how thorough you want to be, he says they cost anywhere from ten thousand to twenty thousand per analysis. And you got to think, if he's looked at twelve things, that's over a hundred twenty grand right there.
2: It's absolutely insane. Everything's so expensive, right? especially science.
0: Yeah. Now, Nolan said eventually if they want to figure out the answers, they're going to need to get down to looking at things at an atomic level, which would get much, much more expensive. Now, in his opinion, um, when people say, well, there's no real results, you know, it's like we say all the time, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. It's because nobody's funded the question properly to get the results. However, I did find this interesting given the whole, like, Bigelow, OSAP bid stuff. Um, And I guess that wasn't just strictly uh, UAP. Weren't they also looking at, like, ghosts and werewolves and shit? Um, But he did manage to get $22 from the government. Um, And they didn't really fucking get anywhere. Uh, I mean, any thoughts on, like, the funding and shit? I think also it's, like with something like that that would there's just so much government red tape, so much fucking bullshit that the money just doesn't go to the proper research channels that sort of thing. I don't know.
2: I think that most people most people in our government this is not higher on their on their priority list. They have a lot of other you know things that they're focused on. And we're going to need a lot more people from the government to want to be interested, you know, legitimately interested in like learning this stuff and learning about it and, you know, figuring this shit out, figuring out what's flying around in the skies around us every single day. Right. Right. That we can't explain, but until that happens, they're just not going to get enough. The, 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 amount of funding that's really going to quote unquote, make a make a difference, I guess. Um, I think there are, are more people starting to acknowledge that this stuff is happening, but, um, but that's that's the hard part is the funding. But also, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, if they're trying to cover everything up, you know, they're never going to get there. They're not. Ne- I don't know. Like, maybe if they're using Arrow to just kind of talk to us and like get us to believe what they want, right? I don't know. Okay, Rob, what do you think, man?
1: Well, I'm just thinking like if we go all the way back to, I mean, could we say? legitimately that project blue book is like the first like known research project dedicated to this kind of stuff
0: okay so again that's where we can go down so many rabbit holes and like i said there's so much mud with this you could look at blue book as another smoke screen like arrow or you could look at MJ-12 as the real legitimate work being done. I mean, I don't know. It's it's tied up in a lot I'm just, of fucking bullshit. I'm just bolster. saying
1: like the, like the first known government research project.
0: Yes, to my knowledge, I believe. I mean, I think it was like started off as grudge or sign or something and then eventually evolved into Blue Book. But and that yes. was
1: like, what, 47, 49-ish? yeah
0: 47 or not i think it was even 50s to 60s
1: and since okay like let's just throw 1950 on it as like a intermediate like year that it started just for like the sake of conversation so since so for the past 73 years we've had government research projects that are government funded researching this stuff like Obviously, like, not enough because, to our knowledge, we still don't know what the fuck's going on. But it's, like, obviously there is some heightened sense of trying to figure it out, at least to, like, till you get to a certain level. And then it's, like, when you can't figure out anymore, they just kind of, like, can the project. Or, like, in some cases, as we were talking about last time, it's, like too many people are like blowing the whistle or finding out stuff they shouldn't have found out. And then they just end up canning the project. But then it always comes back to like the UAP thing, the arrow, you know, even Gary Nolan and Jacques Valet researching this stuff. Like, yeah, we're saying that it's on their dime right now, but I mean, Valet is a fucking millionaire scientist, correct?
0: Yeah, he's like a venture capitalist. I mean he's done. Yeah, so you know,
1: 10 grand ain't shit to him. So he's probably running these tests all the time.
0: Right, right. And that's I think so that's where it's never been properly funded. It's always some fucking bullshit red tape government shit.
1: But I think the I mean, like, if I had to guess, I would say that for a guy with that amount of money to be looking into it, he's thinking that. You know, if I pour enough, if I dump enough of my own money into this and we, like, find some, like, major discovery, then, you know, next thing you know, he's a fucking billionaire because he has, he's the one that funded the discovery, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, but also on the flip side, maybe not. Maybe, like we said, it's been canned and shit-canned so many times because our science isn't there. So if this guy throws all his fucking life's work at this, all his money and our science still isn't there, he's he's out in the cold. There's no room yeah. at the end. He's spent all his money and his life looking into a fucking dead end.
1: Or he finds out too much and gets fucking Jeffrey epstein <laughs> Right, Right, right. Um, but I mean, it's like, I think it's actually kind of smart from that perspective because if he's operating independently, like, he can basically do what he wants to do with that information. He doesn't, ha- he's not, under the fucking watchful eye of Big Brother. I mean, like, yeah, I'm sure to an extent they're probably monitoring him at some level, just to figure out like what the fuck's going on behind closed doors. But it seems like it's kind of just like an independent project at the moment, correct?
0: Right, right. Same with him, Avi Loeb. It's like, like we said, these guys are doing this in their spare time with their their own resources. Um, now, speaking of funding. That will bring us to Blue Sky's research. So as many people know, science, especially in the U.S., is capitalist in nature. Um, So it's going to follow the money. You know, if there's money, research grants and things to be done or some type of return on investment, people are going to jump at the chance to look into something. You know, venture capitalist firms, they're not going to invest in something that academia hasn't stamped as a viable or appliable technology, you know, look at the explosion of AI in the last couple of years or so. You had something that went from Terminator movies and sci-fi plots in the eighties and nineties to now a vast majority of people thinking that this new technology is going to take their jobs. And that's just in the span of about 30 years.
1: Um, well, it is. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, you can go in the damn grocery store, dude, the fucking grocery store up here. Half the checkouts are self checkout, and then they got a damn robot cleaning the floor.
0: Fucking, I can't wait for the robot
1: takeover, dude.
0: The robots are coming, dude, and I, for one, am a, a, an ally.
1: They're already here, bro. <laughs> yeah. You've seen the fucking, uh, what, who is it? Boston Technology that's doing the, like, the police robots?
0: Oh, yeah. Boston Dynamics or something like that.
2: Yeah. Whatever. Robocop. Robocop. Right. That's some sci-fi shit.
0: RoboCop, dude. That's reality in a few years. Okay. Now, so back to back to the subject at hand here. Now, the term blue skies research or basic research essentially implies a freedom to carry out curiosity-driven research that could lead to outcomes not forecasted at the start of an endeavor. So it's, it's research where real-world applications are not immediately apparent. There's no clear goal. The opposite of this would be applied research. Now, proponents of basic research, they argue that unanticipated scientific breakthroughs are sometimes more valuable than the outcomes of agenda-driven research, pointing to advances in genetics and stem cell biology as examples of unforeseen benefits from research that was originally seen as purely theoretical in scope. Now, Blue Sky's research often challenges accepted thinking and introduces entire new fields of study. But because of the uncertain return on investment, Blue Sky projects are politically and commercially unpopular and tend to lose funding to research that is perceived as being more profitable or practical. Now, since about the late 60s through the 70s, most science has switched to short-term goal-oriented research projects. Um, With this type of research, there's also the pressure put on researchers and scientists to demonstrate the practical applications of their work. In other words, they have to predict their findings and estimate short-term impact. Now, some hold the view that this stifles the creativity needed for scientific discovery Rather than stimulating it. That being said, there seems to be a need for prominent scientists and universities to help the media, the public, and in turn, policymakers to understand the importance of giving scientists the freedom to challenge accepted thinking rather than being shackled by it. Encouraging an avenue for blue skies research could have immense influence over future scientific discoveries. Now, one big proponent of this was none other than alleged MJ-12 member Van Ivor Bush.
1: Check out our last episode for more on this guy.
0: Now, so he wrote this paper that I was reading called Science, the Endless Frontier. Now, this was a 1944 report to President Truman by Bush, who was the director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development. And in that paper, he said, quote,
2: Science has been in the wings. It should be brought to the center of the stage for in it lies much of our hope for the future.
0: Now, this paper is pretty long, but it is an interesting read. Um, And I'll link this in the description, but he's basically speaking to all the points we just hit on with Blue Skies Research. He talks about the importance science will have in driving the technology and stimulating the economy of a post-war world. Now, from the paper... I uh, pulled these two points, which, um, these are quotes from the paper, um, where he outlines like a need for blue skies research. Now he says one expenditures for scientific research by industry and government almost in, which is almost entirely applied research have more than doubled between 1930 and 1940. Whereas in 1930, they were six times as large as the research expenditures of colleges, universities, and research institutes. By 1940, they were nearly 10 times as large. And point two, expenditures for scientific research in the colleges and universities increased by only one half during this period, and those for endowed research institutes have slowly declined. If the colleges, universities, and research institutes are to meet the rapidly increasing demands of industry and government for new scientific knowledge, basic research should be strengthened by use of public funds.
2: I just had comments about um, Blue Skies research what do we in got? general. like? I mean, I think it's absolutely uh, important to... The, you know, continuing the scientific process. I mean, if you think about it, science is intrinsically supposed to be, we know nothing. We go in there with no expectation because we want to discover something new. You know, it's right. all about, that's what makes it so exciting to science, like true scientists, you know? Right. Right. So, I mean, if you, in a way, if you think about it, blue skies research should be science, intrinsically as it should be people going in there with no pre you know preconception no maybe a hypothesis but they're open-minded to like what else there could be what other explanation they can potentially find going through the scientific process and that's i mean it's so profound to me because you look at all these these scientists today like you were saying you know neil deGrasse. <laughs> Elon Musk you know these guys are G's but they're, they're just like I honestly think that those guys don't really give a shit about it enough really like I really think that Elon's like I'm trying to get us I'm trying to get like to Mars and then I don't know where else from there but like I'm trying to progress the human race from a certain perspective he doesn't really give a shit about aliens
0: right but also Elon's not necessarily a scientist he's more of an engineer
2: He's an engineer, right? So I guess I can't really put him in that camp. But um, you know, I guess long story short, like I'd love to, you know, we need to we need to talk about this stuff more. We need to talk about how, how do we implement this, you know, full scale, especially when it comes to UAPs, because we ain't we're not gonna get nowhere if we are not open minded with this stuff. You know what I mean?
0: Right, right. Basically, more blue skies research means further scientific progress.
2: Yep. I mean, that's that's what I think would happen, I guess.
0: Okay, okay. Um,
2: I don't think it's
1: that guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Elon Musk don't give a shit because, like, obviously they wouldn't have gotten to where they are now if they didn't. But right. I th- I think that as we talked about at the opening of the episode, it's like for so long of a time it's just been one of those, like, like hush hush things like people don't really talk about it because they don't want to ruin their reputation as we've been kind of like parodying throughout this whole fucking episode but I think that if more people in their like Elon Musk for example the guy's a fucking billionaire if he took some of that money and put it into this type of research I think that would definitely help like propel us to the next level but also it's like Like you said, his main goal right now is like getting us to Mars, seeing if that's inhabitable, seeing what's next. And it's like. And also profit. Yeah. Well, that's what I was about to say. It's like, yeah, he's he's obviously in it for the money, but also it's like you don't become a billionaire by not giving a shit. It's like he does give a shit, just maybe not necessarily. Well, he gives a shit about the
0: money, maybe not about the science.
1: well
2: Well, rob let me clarify real quick though (laughs) like i I meant like it's not that he doesn't give a shit it's just he has like priorities you know what i'm saying like his priorities are like figure out how to get us to like colonize mars so we can you know get out there in case like a natural disaster happens or you know to to basically continue the human race i don't think he's necessarily like Oh, like worried about aliens, or even like concerned about it necessarily, because it's not his mo. If that makes sense, he's like the
0: uh, he's like the dickheads in Interstellar that wanted to get everybody off planet, but didn't give a shit about the people left on the planet. We got to continue it, it, the that, human race on Mars, right?
2: I think he's all about that. I, I I don't think he it's that he doesn't give a shit about aliens. It's just it's he's not focused on that. You know, he's focused on getting us to Mars and, like, getting these satellites up using SpaceX Dragon, you know, Dragon rockets (laughs) and stuff like, yeah, I don't know.
0: All right, we want to get back into the, the publishing boom. Now, sadly, it seems that there has been a wrench in the gears, so to speak. Somewhere along the lines, the science has fallen second to profit driven by an industry that nobody really saw coming. And that industry is publishing. All right. So let's get into the scientific. That brings us to the scientific publishing boom, we'll call it. Now today, as we kind of have been uh, beaten off the dead horse here, scientists know that their careers depend on being published. And professional success is essentially determined on getting their work published in the most prestigious journals. Gone are the days of slow, sometimes directionless work, which was pursued by some of the most influential scientists of the 20th century. This is no longer a viable career option. Um, Now, scientific journals, essentially weekly or monthly publications in which scientists share their results. Now, despite the narrow audience, It's an astonishingly big business that rivals the music and film industries in size, yet seems to be far more profitable with total global revenues of more than $24 billion. Now, the way this process works, basically scientists do their work mostly with government funding. They then give it to publishers for free. The publisher pays scientific editors whose job it is to judge the work, decide if it's worth publishing, check for grammar, that type of shit. But the bulk of the editorial burden, checking with scientific validity, evaluating the experiments, is the process we talked about earlier known as peer review. Now, this is done by working scientists on a volunteer basis. Now, the publishers then sell the product Back to government funded institutional and university libraries to be read by scientists who collectively created the product in the first place. Now, I don't really like uh, toot my horn as a businessman, but does this sound like a good business model?
1: If you're the government, it does.
0: <laughs> well, not if you're the publisher, it does, right? This is like if the this is like if the New Yorker or Sports Illustrated demanded that journalists write and edit each other's work for free and then ask the government to foot the bill.
1: Yeah, but I think in cases like this, the government's probably just gonna, you know, write it off and then it's like they're just making money off of it. It's not like uh it's not like the same as where you're paying an editor to do their work and then publishing it and then also selling the publication, you know what I mean?
0: Well, right. They're essentially moving, they're moving the pile of money from the government, from the scientists to the publishers. They're putting it in their own pockets.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why it works out well if you're the government.
0: Okay. So now, of many course s-
1: they're going to keep doing it.
0: Uh, now, many scientists hold the belief that the publishing industry exerts too much influence over what scientists choose to study ultimately holding back scientific progress. Now, we're no scientists here, but I'd speculate that this is bad for science. Would you guys agree? I would agree. (laughs) I mean,
1: didn't didn't he basically, you were saying that um, your boy said that earlier? He said, like, it should be um, more, like, free-thinking science than, like, shackled by the government
0: right right van iver Bush. essentially yeah right okay so yeah now furthermore researchers may end up unintentionally exploring dead ends that fellow scientists have already run into solely because the information about previous failures has never given, been given space in the pages of these relevant scientific journals a 2013 study, for example, reported that half of all clinical trials in the U.S. are never published in a journal. So they're not publishing the failures. They're only publishing the quote-unquote groundbreaking science or that the science that works, we'll say.
2: Well, yeah, yeah you know, I feel like when you give another party that's not directly involved in, in the actual work, like the scientists are, it just it gets it gets ugly
0: okay all right now speaking of that let's jump into this history because this is where my research ended up and it's fascinating and it shed some light on how we got to where we are today and i feel like most people don't even know this story or at least i didn't before i started looking into this um and and this isn't really even something that's reported on all that much although i did find A pretty good article on The Guardian, which kind of summed up this whole kerfuffle, we'll say. Um, And and that's where a lot of what follows comes from. Um, So now we're switching over to the history side of the episode. So in the scientific boom years after World War II, entrepreneurs built fortunes by taking publishing out of the hands of scientists and expanding the business on a previously unthinkable scale. Now, all roads more or less lead back to Pergamon Press. Uh, Pergamon was an Oxford-based publishing house that published scientific and medical books and journals, now known as Elsevier. Um, Now, top British scientists from Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, to physicist Charles Galton Darwin, grandson of Charles Darwin, became concerned that while British science was world-class its publishing arm was bleak as hell. Now, back then, science publishers were mainly known for being inefficient and constantly broke. Um, Journals often appeared on cheap, thin paper. They were produced almost as an afterthought by scientific societies. Uh, You also got to think this was well before the Internet age, so printing was king. Now, the government's solution to this was to pair British publishing house Butterworths, now also owned by Elsevier, with renowned German publisher Springer, in order for Butterworths to learn how to profit on journals, and British science would get its work out at a faster pace. Now, the Butterworths directors at this time were all ex-British intelligence. They hired a young entrepreneur, we'll call him the tycoon for now, to help manage the company. Now along with another ex-book, Paul Rosebaud, a metallurgist who spent to- who spent the war passing Nazi nuclear secrets to the British through the French and Dutch resistance as a scientific editor. Now Pergamon's true importance would become far larger than most people even realize. In fact, few people in the last century have done more to shape the way science is conducted today than these gentlemen at the helm of Pergamon Press. Now, as we said, science was entering a boom period, having gone from being a scattered, amateur pursuit of wealthy gentlemen to a respected profession. In the post-war years, science became synonymous with progress, like we were saying earlier. Governments would emerge after the war as the major patrons of scientific endeavors for the first time in history. And this was not just the arm of the military industrial complex, but through newly created agencies such as the U.S. National Science Foundation and the rapidly expanding university system. So Butterworth, Butterworths, they actually decide to say, fuck it. They just abandoned the project altogether in 1951. And the tycoon offered up 13,000 uh, pounds, which is about 540 grand in uh in U.S. dollars today. So he offers that up for both Butterworth and Springer shares, giving him complete control of the company. Now, he kept on Rosebud uh, as a scientific director, and the new venture was dubbed Pergamon Press. So science is expanding, and Pergamon realized that it would need to produce new journals to cover all these new fields of study. Now, as we said, the process before was slow and bogged down by internal debates between members about the boundaries of their field. Now, all Pergamon needed to do was convince prominent, a prominent academic in their fie- that their field required a new journal to showcase the field of study properly. So it installed this person at the head of that journal. And Pergamon would then begin selling subscriptions to university libraries which suddenly had a ton of government money to spend, asking them to sign exclusive contracts to edit Pergamon journals. Now, this was something that scientists had never seen. Pergamon said, we don't compete on sales, we compete on authors. The tycoon from Pergamon would attend conferences specifically looking to recruit editors for new journals, throwing lavish rooftop and yacht parties wooing scientists to plan out their new journals. One scientist said,
1: quote, We would get dinner and fine wine, and at the end he would present us a check, a few thousand pounds for the society. It was more money than us poor scientists had ever seen.
0: So by by 1959, Pergamon was publishing 40 journals. Six years later, the number would rise to 150. Now this put Pergamon light years ahead of the competition. In 1959, Pergamon's rival, Elsevier had just 10 English language journals, and it would take that company another decade to reach 50. Pergamon would come up with these grand titles like International Journal of blank. A former vice president at Pergamon described this as a PR trick, but it also reflected an understanding of how science and society's attitude towards science had changed. Collaborating and getting your work seen on an international stage would quickly become a new form of prestige for researchers. So basically, Pergamon had the market cornered before anyone else even realized there was a market. Now, with the expansion of Pergamon, the scientific article essentially became the only way science was systematically represented in the world. A good idea or a theory even from the most brilliant person in the world doesn't count for shit unless you have it published. So, if you control access to the scientific literature, it's a no-brainer that you'd essentially be controlling science itself, right?
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you're basically uh, paying these guys bills, right?
0: Right. Um, Now, the only potential limit was a lack in government funding. And post-World War II, this wasn't happening. Like we said, science was progress, and governments wanted to be at at the forefront of progress at this time. In the 1960s, Kennedy fully funded the space program, and by the 70s, Nixon declared a war on cancer, and the British government had its own nuclear program with American aid. No matter the political climate, science was backed in full by government money. Like we said, more science, more progress. Now, Pergamon had transformed the business of publishing, but the work of science remained unchanged. However, by the mid-70s, publishers began to dip their hands in the practice of science itself, starting down a road that would essentially lock scientists' careers into the publishing system, guiding the direction of research. One journal started this transformation. Cell, now also owned by Elsevier, was a journal started by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Rob's got buddies there. Now, to showcase the new field of, uh, the journal was started to showcase the new field of molecular biology. It was edited by a young biologist, Ben Lewin. Now, Lewin prized long, rigorous papers that answered big questions, often representing years of research that would span multiple papers. And he rejected far more papers than he published. Now, Lewin realized scientists are basically, like Billy was saying earlier, they're pompous dickheads. They want to be part of an exclusive club, better than the rest, and Cell became that club. Now, where you published became immensely important. Other editors took a similar approach to try to replicate cell success, and publishers adopted a metric called impact factor, or how often papers in a journal are cited in other papers. And so scientists who publish in high-impact journals were rewarded with more jobs and more funding. So science becomes further tied up with uh, journal editors. Now, Pergamon also branched into social sciences and psychology, series of journals prefixed computers and blank suggested that Pergamon predicted the growing importance of digital technology as well. No field was off the table and profits kept rolling in. Now between 1975 and 1985, the price of a journal doubled. The New York times reported that in 84, it costs 2,500 to subscribe to the journal of brain Re- to the journal on brain research By 1988, it cost more than five grand. That same year, Harvard overran its research journal budget by half a million dollars. Now, during the years of this explosion, so to speak, scientists occasionally questioned this hugely profitable business. As we said, they basically supplied their work for free. But it seemed to be the university librarians who first recognized the trap that had been set in the market. The librarians, they used university funds to buy the journals on behalf of scientists. And so it was the librarians who found themselves locked in a series of thousands of tiny monopolies. With more than a million scientific articles being published each year, they had to buy all of them at whatever the price the publishers set. Now, as we said, from Pergamum's perspective, this is a massive victory. As journals they published had become the gatekeepers of scientific prestige. In 91, the tycoon ended up selling off his majority shares of Pergamon, and it became Elsevier, which it still is today. So with the purchase of Pergamon's catalog, Elsevier now controlled more than 1,000 scientific journals, making it the largest scientific publisher in the world by a long shot. By 1994, prices rose by 50%. Universities now had their budgets stretched to a breaking point. The U.S.-based Publishers Weekly reported librarians referring to a doomsday machine in their industry. And for the first time, they began canceling subscriptions to less popular journals. Now, I'm thinking you could also even see this as a connection to the expansion of universities as a pure-for-profit business, raising the cost of textbooks and tuitions while the value of a degree became more and more saturated. Now, by the mid-90s, the Internet was starting to boom. Some predicted, hey, this is finally going to end these journals' stranglehold on the prestige of science. But, as always, the publishers understood the market better than the academics. By 1998, Elsevier devised a plan for the Internet Age that became known as the Big Deal. It offered electronic access to bundles of hundreds of journals at a time. A university would pay a set fee each year for access, and universities signed up in droves. Uh, Cornell's 2009 bill was just short of $2 million, and any student or professor could download any journal they wanted through Elsevier's website. So Elsevier cleverly switched Pergamon's tiny monopolies into one so large that it was impossible for universities to do without. It once more sustained this immense power the publishers had captured, and the profits soared into the billions by 2010. In a 2015 report, Elsevier owned 24% of the scientific journal market, while other publishers like Springer and Wiley Blackwell controlled another 12% each. These three companies accounted for half the market. Now, since the 2000s, scientists have been seeking alternatives to subscription publishing with something called open access. This basically removes the commercial element. So basically, you have these online journals, scientists pay upfront fees to cover editing costs, and this guarantees the work is available and free to access for anyone. Now, some of the biggest funding agencies in the world, including the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust, back this model. But still, only about a quarter of scientific papers are made freely available at the time of publication. More recently, the most radical opposition to subscription-based journals has been centered around a website called Sci-Hub. Um, this, think of this as like the Napster of science, or I guess the Pornhub of science. Nice. Um,
2: <laughs> Everything's free?
0: It, that's where they got the name, you know? And uh, so this site allows anyone to download scientific papers for free. And its creator, Alexandra Elbakian of Kazakhstan, says, quote, science should belong to scientists and not the publishers. Now, currently, Elbakian is in hiding, facing charges of hacking and copyright infringement in the U.S. So that's wonderful, right?
2: <laughs> wonderful, yeah. Um, track. it's tracking. <laughs> you know,
0: However, it does appear that frustration with the current system is growing, but if we look at the history, it would seem that betting against science publishers is a risky undertaking. After all, back in 1988, the Pergamon Tycoon predicted that in the future, there would be a handful of powerful publishing companies and the trade would adapt in the electronic age with no printing costs, creating pure profit for the publishers that prediction has certainly come to life. Now that tycoon who started and ran Pergamon Press was none other than Robert Maxwell. Yes, the father of infamous Ghislaine Maxwell. Hmm. Nice. Very interesting. Hmm.
1: The dots are connecting. (laughs)
0: The dots are seeming to connect. Now, as we said, in 1991, Maxwell sold Pergamon to Elsevier for £440 million to finance his purchase of the New York Daily News. Later that same year, he became hit with a series of scandals over mounting debts, shady accounting practices, and an explosive accusation by American journalist Seymour Hirsch that he was an Israeli spy with links to arms traders. And on November 5th, 1991, Maxwell was found drowned, quote unquote, off his yacht in the Canary Islands. And of course, the theories arose that he was pushed, committed suicide, or was perhaps outright murdered. In 2003, theories alleged that Maxwell was assassinated by Mossad. that's essentially the Israeli CIA to hide his spying activities. Um, now, of course, in 2003, Maxwell was long dead. But the business he started continues to thrive in new hands, reaching new levels of profit and global power, all the while guiding science by the sales that Maxwell created. So that's the last thing I expected. I didn't expect there to be any Epstein connection at all in this. And then I find this crazy shit about Pergamon Press history. I mean... What are we thinking here? Do we have any fucking thoughts here? Uh, will we see a change in the coming years? Or do we think that science will continue to be dictated by profit, politics, and the powers that be?
2: I honestly really do think that unless something changes, it's all its all going to be about money. Right. So these publishers, I mean, even Pergamon Press, they knew how to work the system. I mean, it's a good idea, but it doesn't promote healthy, scientific thought. Um, Well, it's
0: a good idea for the publishers, yeah, because they're raking in the money, but the scientists are just left basically doing all the work for free, and then... I think the machine like snowballed so far that now it's kind of guiding what they even fucking study because
2: Exactly because it becomes trendy and like you want to be part of this cool crew. You know, oh like get published by Pergamon and you're the coolest like si- you know, you're you're in the you're in the like elite elite. Yeah. And so everyone I mean that's appealing, right? So it's like but that doesn't c- conduce like the way science should actually be conducted and that is open-minded free thought to circle back to what I said earlier, um, you know, open to anything, going in with no preconception, going in with no drive about like trends to try to get published by Pergamon or like, we're going to publish this because we're going to make money off of it. It's like studying things that truly need to be studied, you know? Right. But, right. It's going to take people to take those risks for these things to become profitable because I believe that UAP could definitely eventually become profitable if like you know it was done the right way. Not that I would ever want that to happen, but yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, do we think that this recent shift in in kind of UAP credibility will open up some serious academic discussions or or do we think that this power of the stigma, so to speak, will remain.
1: I think over time, like, the more research that comes out, it could definitely attract more people to invest in that kind of research. But I think for now, you know, if the capitalist machine just keeps on rolling, bringing in those dollars, I don't don't see anything stopping it, you know? Right,
0: okay. Um, I mean,
1: obviously you got like the outliers, like that chick that was hacking and being accused of copyright infringement out there trying to make it more accessible to people so that they don't have to pay for it, which is actually pretty cool. But it's like, in the grand scheme of things, if something has been working like that for that long and making so much money and you basically have all these universities locked down paying you like millions of dollars every year. That's, uh, pretty hard to look away from, you know?
0: Right. I mean, we're in the wrong fucking business boys. We should have gotten into the publish, the scientific publishing business, uh, long ago.
2: Hell yeah. But I also (laughs) want to mention another point I thought of. It's like, People are only gonna latch onto this topic if the if like a large majority of the public like buys into it, you know because it's all about the ROI. It's like, oh, all these people are watching all this stuff about like UAPs and everyone's gonna flock to that if it ever becomes some like viral thing, you know like then everyone's gonna try to jump on the bandwagon after it's like already been cool.
0: And I think like uh, I do think it is like the science has to kind of catch up like like you're talking about with the ROI, like just the public popularity isn't going to necessarily dictate a return on investment. If these guys don't even know what the fuck this study is like, they're going to need to figure out, oh, we can make some fucking gravitron manipulation quantum craft and then that guy is gonna make like (laughs) fucking millions of dollars you know what i'm saying yeah because i mean the pergamon stuff it isn't necessarily directly linked to uap like it is a bit of a historical tangent i just got off But you can draw a line from basically everything we talked about at the top of the episode to where we are now within the scientific community. I mean, it's like we used to take UAP seriously, unless, like we said, you hold the idea that Blue Book was a a smokescreen. But even if you hold that idea, I think this still lines up. And post-World War II, the government's looking into these things. Now we're throwing money at Blue Skies Research. We want scientific progress. You also look at guys like Van Iver Bush, who was a proponent of Blue Skies Research, and then Edward Condon, who essentially started the stigma of UFOs. And all these guys work together on the Manhattan Project. And if there is an MJ-12, they definitely have links to that as well. And interesting side note here. J. Edgar Hoover, Edward Condon, was only on the Manhattan Project for a brief time. He, he resigned. J. Edgar Hoover actually wrote a letter to President Truman in 46 that named several senior government officials as part of a Soviet network. And it described Condon as nothing more or less than an espionage agent in disguise. Now, he had his clearance revoked and reinstated numerous times, as did many other scientists on the Manhattan Project, including Oppenheimer. And remember from our m j twelve episode, Van Iver Bush was asked to resign and later turned up dead, so like even that kind of stuff is a whole nother rabbit hole you could go down um now then by the 1960s the Cold War is in full effect. We got to keep any scientific advances a secret as secret as possible on top of the science on top of that science itself switches into the hands of publishers gets caught up in the wave of bullshit and funding problems we just looked at. Meanwhile, UFOs are essentially lost in the sauce. (laughs) Or was it this stigma? Was the stigma perhaps engineered by some type of high-level committee, some secret cabal that continues to shroud these discoveries from the general public, writing them off as some sort of plot from a sci-fi novel, all the while someone somewhere is behind the scenes working on this stuff? I mean, that's the fucking story right there. That's the fucking
1: crux of the episode. Am I right, boys? Classic, uh, classic government
2: smokescreen. That's it. That it wraps it up, like Condon.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, Condon. Uh, I mean, what do we guys? What do we got on here? Final thoughts on Blue Skies Research, academia, UFOs, Gary Nolan. What What are we thinking? What do we got?
2: It's a lot. Like it's, it's just, <laughs> it is, it is this in en- like,
0: this ended up going away that, like I said, I didn't even see coming. And then, I mean, if you could get further into, like we said with the Soviet stuff. And a lot of people think Maxwell himself was a Mossad spy. Same with Epstein and all that stuff with links to the Mossad. And it's, it's a crazy fucking not we'll say.
1: Right, yeah,
2: exactly. I, I think it's very it, it, it's it's a very important topic. And I remember when we were talking about this episode, we were kind of prepping for it, and you know, I, t- I texted you guys. I was like, yeah, this is really important because, in my opinion, I I really believe that like there's something going on. Our government's starting to acknowledge it. The scientific community does not take it seriously because I believe most people don't take this topic seriously. The majority of people that I personally speak to about UFOs, UAPs, UAEs, whatever you want to call them, it's very, ha ha ha, like, oh, that's funny, you know, like, that's hilarious or they're religious. So like, you know, of course, I respect that, that mentality, of course, but they don't really like take it seriously. And I right, think right. more people need to be have stock in it and want to really know. The public, our government officials—I mean, I think the government's starting to come out more about it. But I think that it, that needs to continue to happen, and I hope more information is slowly leaked in the coming years to help propel that. But scientists—they have—and they have to use this blue sky research that we talked about as well, because you know that's what's going to actually lead them to these discoveries right like i mean it's so important for these people to be open minded to anything and not go go in there with any specific preconception or determination before they even complete you know the, the research so i think it's absolutely crucial and i really hope people wake up to it but i guess only time will tell
0: And like we said, I mean, maybe the science just fucking isn't even there yet. Maybe it needs to fucking catch up, you know? Um,
2: And and that's 100% valid, too. I mean, maybe we're not there technologically, evolution from an evolutionary perspective.
0: But I think it's like we said, we'll only get there if we start throwing more money at kind of blue skies research instead of this agenda-driven research that has seemed to plague the scientific community
2: yeah it's distracting and like it it drives people to do to research certain things for a purpose whether I mean it all it all boils down to money, let's be honest nowadays right. in this day and age
1: right and um well, it sounds like in any day and age really ever since the uh publishers took over
2: well yeah,
0: since I guess yep. you can since the publishers started realizing they could fucking pocket <laughs> the money line their pockets become tycoons um
1: well, I also think it will be interesting to see if anything, like, viable comes from the Senate hearing that's happening. Because I think, you know, even though people like myself included kind of think of our, you know, government as kind of a joke right now that... um <laughs> If, if serious and, like, compelling information is actually, like, brought to the forefront and they take it seriously, then that would definitely be a big shift in momentum for the research and development side of things regarding UAPs just because, you know, like, Billy was just saying, like, a lot of – the majority of people right now, like, see it and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, like, this is out of a sci-fi movie. Like, this stuff doesn't exist or, like – they just think that they just believe what they're told and you know we're the only intelligent life out there and nothing else could ever exist you know with these publishers still kind of having a stranglehold on what does and doesn't hit the journals each month then it's like kind of hard for real scientists to kind of get their discoveries out there. But I mean, obviously I think if anything groundbreaking was to happen, we probably wouldn't initially hear about it right off the bat anyways, you know, just cause how under wraps things have always been kept from the American public in the past.
2: Yeah. And, and honestly, like it's so crazy to me because there's so much more evidence that's coming out currently that the government's talking about that like is all this, it's all this crazy stuff. That's like from like movies that's in the news and people still don't care. It's like that stigmatized. I feel like in our culture, I
0: I do see a lot of like posts like that of like, Hey, nobody cares. But at, at the same time, like I, to kind of play devil's advocate, like what the fuck is the general public supposed to do? Like what the fuck do you want people to do? like the government I'm not I'm not, not asking
2: people to do anything about it. I'm just I'm just saying like it's just interesting to me that people don't even like have an interest in it. They're just cuz when you mention like oh yeah, do you hear the government just release this new department to study like UFOs, you know, like the UFOs from back in the day that everyone talked about, the you know, little <laughs> yeah. green men, those UFOs and they're just like, "Oh, haha, yeah, oh that's cool." Yeah, and, and, and like,
0: that's um Really? like. That proves the power of the stigma, dude. It's powerful.
2: That's um, all I'm saying. They'd rather talk about Barbie and like the new Marvel movie coming <laughs> out. You know what I'm saying? Hey, hey Oppenheimer, oh, yeah, Oppenheimer.
0: Oppenheimer is also fucking up there, dude. Our boy Oppenheimer. He's also in the in the news. Maybe more people will start looking at the Manhattan Project, get in on these these scientists and shit. And you know, um what I was thinking, maybe this is bad research on my end. I didn't really look into, or I don't know how you would look into, like, how much true Blue Skies research is even going on today. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't think, unless somebody made some crazy breakthrough, that it would be published in a journal for all the reasons we just said. But, um, you know, who knows how much of this shit is going on today. But it is hopeful, like, when you look at that lady who's hiding, who started Sci-Hub, um, it is hopeful because if you compare that to Napster, I mean, Napster completely revolutionized, like, the music industry, so maybe that will do the same for science. Um, you know, maybe we, there is we should some hope, hope there. Yeah, like, like Obama. I would like to hope. Yeah.
1: Are you with um, science?
0: I, I, I'm i with science, dude. Um, well, and, I mean...
1: Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, just, again... Piggybacking off you guys there, I think that maybe part of the reason that um, when something like this hits the news, people don't take it as seriously just because of all the other like crazy shit going on in the world at the moment. It's just like, oh, just another fucking crazy ass thing that's on the news. So it's just everyone's kind of like jaded by all the crazy news stories out there that you know people seeing a ufo land in las vegas is just like you know a a norm nowadays and not like as crazy as it would have been you know back in the 50s when no one had ever seen or heard of this shit you know
2: that that's a very good point and that's why i don't really like watching the news because it's just like (laughs) doom and gloom but that's a whole we ain't going down that rabbit hole you'd Um, rather
0: watch uh you'd rather watch barbie He's
1: a
2: barbie No, hat. I'm good on that, <laughs> no, actually. Like no, I'm I not mean, hating hey. on it, but I'd rather watch Oppenheimer. Hey, you know? yeah, we got Oppenheimer. We speed. got
0: uh, Asteroid City. Aliens are are coming into the fucking uh pop culture again, too. Maybe this is our perfect time to write our
1: fucking alien movie, dude. Alien Summer, baby. Yeah. Let's alien do Summer.
0: It. Alien Summer. Um I mean, there you have it, folks. Some food for thought. Chew on this until next time, where we will be Zooming out and getting into a comprehensive history on the whole shebang, the whole shabil. We're getting to UFOs from past to present in order to wrap up Alien Summer. And who knows, maybe Congress will show us some fucking aliens. Maybe they'll be sitting on the Senate floor um, talking, so to yeah, talking to Kirkpatrick. Yes, talking to Kirkpatrick himself. Um, but there you have it, guys. I mean, let us know what you thought of this episode. Um, if you have any thoughts, any any evidence, if you talk to an alien, let us fucking know. Um, on this one, I want to cite NBCnews.com. The U.S. military takes UFO seriously. Why doesn't Silicon Valley or academia? By Rizwan Virk. Uh Vice.com for the interview with Gary Nolan. By Champ Champion. Uh, TheDebrief.org. Uh, Gary Nolan, a Stanford professor... Professor's Quest to Resolve Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon by Mika Hanks and the TheGuardian.com Is the Staggeringly Profitable Business of Scientific Publishing Bad for Science by Stephen Baranyi and Science the Endless Frontier by Van Iver Bush and on that stay safe out there
1: guys Loyal Legion as always thanks for tuning in um, if you guys have any ideas That you want to hear on an upcoming episode, you know what to do. Hit us in the DMs, Podcast from Outer Space on Instagram. Uh, Check out podcastfromouterspace.com if you want to know a little bit about about us. If you want to buy some merch, if you uh, want to link to all of our other episodes. And as always, stay safe out there.
0: Yes, and speaking of the merch website, I did. uh, The slides are restocked for summer, so you can grab yourself a pair of those. And I also put two or one new design for hats. I got some dad hats in three different colors, a ripoff of the nightcap hat from the X-Files. Take a look at that if you guys want to join the secret club podcast from outer space, PFOs Um, on that.
2: Um, We appreciate every single listener out there. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, you know this. We're, we're getting we're getting down the rabbit hole with Alien Summer. It's almost we're like we're almost there. We're almost to fall. Um, we're gonna get into the creepy stuff, uh, paranormal, and do all that good stuff uh, around Halloween time, which is m- one of my personal favorites. But um, you know, appreciate everyone listening in and my new uh, musical project, Survive the Night. Um, hit us on the Spotify and the Apple Music. We just dropped a new track called Back on It we're currently working on our new album so um if you guys like pop music uh just you know just tune in but anyways we will see y'all on the flip side of the moon peace y'all